Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. A big thank you to all of you for joining us here today at the Future of Protein Production. My name is Nick Bradley, and I will be your host for the next hour or so. Just a quick rundown of who we are. We are a platform, a knowledge ecosystem, if you will, that connects companies in the alternative proteins value chain. We do this via news, emailers, webinars, podcasts, and our quarterly magazine, Protein Production Technology International. We also organize events, and on that note, we hope to meet many of you face-to-face on the 11th and 12th of October when we hold our Future of Protein Production live conference and exhibition at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Now, on to today, the topic being Shaping a Greener Future, Exploring the Sustainable Benefits of Plant-Based Proteins. And a very special thank you to Ingredion for sponsoring today's proceedings. As I'm sure I don't have to tell you, eating plant-based diets is not just good for our health, it's good for the health of our planet too. We will probably hear a few stats shortly, but kilo for kilo, liter for liter, animal sourced foods use a hell of a lot more water and carbon than plant-based foods. Somebody at UC Davis recently told me that it can take up to 8,000 gallons of water to produce just one pound of beef. One pound of tofu, on the other hand, requires just 302 gallons and only 290 to produce a pound of unprocessed oats. Carbon footprinting is an important method of communicating the climate change impacts of food production to various stakeholders. Of the top 10 foods with the biggest environmental footprint, number one is lamb, which produces 39 kilos of CO2 per kilo of lamb produced. That's the equivalent of driving about 90 miles. And then it's beef at 27 kilos and then cheese at 13 and a half kilos. The only plant product in the top 10 at number 10 is the potato. It takes about 2.9 kilos of CO2 to produce a kilo of spuds. So we mustn't forget that plant-based foods have a carbon footprint too. And with global demand for plant-based proteins increasing and expected to grow, it's vital this nascent industry doesn't repeat the same mistakes as the conventional food sector. Arguably, it's even more important given the message that we, as an industry, want to convey to the world. And of course, the production methods we use also contribute to our green credentials. So if you're a manufacturer of plant-based products or using these products in your processes, you should be looking at sustainability throughout your value chain. And at the very least, you should be working with partners who meet your own, hopefully high, environmental benchmarks. So with that, it's time now to hear from Declan Rooney from Ingredion and then Brian Nash, who will share the length to which Ingredion is going to ensure it supplies truly sustainable products for its clients in this new food industry. Declan, over to you. Thanks, Nick. My name is Declan Rooney, as Nick said, and I'm the Plant-Based Proteins Platform Lead here in AMEA. So I'm going to give a very brief overview of who Ingredion are and our portfolio of plant-based protein proteins today. Brian will then take a deeper dive into sustainability, explaining its complexity and the tools used to navigate and better understand it. So for those of you who are not familiar with Ingredion, we're a global leader in the food ingredient space that takes plant-based raw materials and turn them, turns them into highly functionalized, specialized solutions. 
So we have a diverse customer base with over 19,000 customers in more than 120 countries. We have over 500 R&D scientists who are developing with our customers in our 32 idea labs around the world. So this is all underpinned by our culture and our commitment to sustainability. One of those is we target to have 100% of our tier one priority crops being sustainably sourced by 2025. And this accounts for about 99% of our sourced uh, ingredients globally. So as we take a look into our portfolio, our specialty solutions are categorized into five growth platforms. So on the left, you can see starch-based texturizers and clean and simple ingredients. So these focus on texturizing solutions. And there's a broad portfolio of specialty starches from corn and potato to tapioca and rice. On the right, you can see it's more related to sugar reduction. So these focus on high intensity sweeteners such as stevia. But today we're going to focus on the middle, which is plant-based proteins. So we have a range of pulse flowers, protein concentrates, and protein isolates, which I'll go into a little bit more detail in a second. So this driving growth roadmap is our purpose and action. So it's creating on-trend ingredient solutions to make life better. So you can see here, there are four key drivers to explain the interest and growing interest in plant-based proteins. So when we look into why this is, 26% of consumers are now following a flexitarian diet, which is creating more demand for plant-based products. So consumers are also more conscious of their health and the foods they eat, with 48% using food and beverages to improve their overall nutrition. So then there are the environmental factors on the right. So consumers are more aware than ever that our food system contributes to about a third of greenhouse gas emission. So this is making consumers more conscious of the choices they make and how it impacts the world. On the next slide, it will go into our plant-based protein portfolio. So you can see we've split in into four categories. So on the left, you can see pulse flowers, which typically with a protein level of 10 to 30%. Then we move on to protein concentrates and then protein isolates, which typically have a protein content of 80 to 85%. And then on the right-hand side, it's a range of textured proteins. So we believe in pulses as raw materials with the majority based on peas and fava beans. And we're looking to expand into other pulses such as lentils. So the sustainability impact varies based on the different processes used. So pea protein isolates, they're produced using a wet milling process, whereas protein concentrates are produced using a dry fractionation process. So dependent on our customers' needs, we can support them to choose the right ingredients. So if we click one more, you can see on our protein concentrates, last year we were recognized and delighted to be recognized at the Plant-Based World Expo in New York for winning the best plant-based sustainability award for our Prista protein concentrate products. So this is the dry fractionation portfolio 
and we use a deflavoring process to improve the overall flavor of these products. So with that, I'd like to hand over to Brian to go more into the sustainability aspect now. So thank you. Thanks, Declan. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Nash. I'm the Vice President of Corporate Sustainability for Ingredient. And I'll walk you through a little bit of the sustainability portion of this discussion. So, and Nick already mentioned this, I think, really well, but, you know, if we look at the carbon footprint of food comparisons, that lamb and beef over here on the left have a much higher carbon footprint at 26.6 and 25.5 kilograms per kilogram of product than, say, down there, if you can find it down there at the bottom, cereals and pulses, except for rice, is looking at 0.51 kilograms per kilogram of product. So certainly a difference in terms of carbon footprint. But then I think there's other considerations that make that more complex as well, which is beef is a big contributor and animal farming is a big contributor to deforestation, which is also contributing to carbon emission rise on the planet. So lots of factors that complexify the discussion around carbon footprint. But that's one example. And then over on the right side, same discussion around water, 1800 gallons of water for a kilogram of beef versus 41 gallons for pulses. And there's lots of sources out there that you can look at to find slightly varying data. But I think they all agree that the environmental footprint of animal proteins tends to be higher than the environmental footprint of plant proteins. And on the water side, there's a great, there's a great book called Virtual Water by Tony Allen that talks about water embedded into the products that we use. So if anybody's looking for more information on that. So understanding your carbon footprint or your environmental footprint is complex. There's a lot of tools out there. I'm sure people have tuned in, some of them tuned in just to find out more about, about the tools, but th there are a huge variety and I couldn't even begin to speak intelligently about all of them. I get calls all the time from people that have other tools and and there's a lot of really value adding things out there. I'll tell you this that we look at academic academic data sometimes just off of websites like pulses.org or other things to just draw information. We've used EcoChain, which is a software that lets you put in your inputs and generates a product carbon footprint. We'll talk more about how good in that platform, which Ingredient has partnered with. And then there's a full blown life cycle assessment, an ISO validated approach to generating your carbon footprint. So you, so you might say, okay, well, which one of those is best? So speaking from the ingredient side, I will tell you, I put our carbon footprint request into three categories. And if you have a pyramid, the bottom is category one, probably 50% of the requests that we get for carbon footprint data are okay with academic or general data around peas or, or pulses. I would say then on top of that, probably around 45 to 48% of the request are what I would call category two, where people want a deeper dive. They don't want academic data. They want something a little more closely aligned to ingredients footprint. And so here we use tools like Howgood or, or EcoChain, or we use organization specific calculations, depending on what's being requested. And then maybe up there on the very top of the pyramid what I would call a category three request, which is a product, a full-blown product life cycle assessment. I would say that two or 3% of the time that's substantiated based on the request. So if a customer of ours with us being B2B is looking to make some sort of unique label claim or to actually put a carbon footprint on a product 
Sometimes they want a full life cycle assessment, but in most cases, category two information or even category one is better. And I want to put that in the kind of perspective for everyone as to how we use these tools and how frequently we're getting requests for them. So, so then I think that leads us into how do we reduce carbon footprint? And the, the simple thing we say inside the company is follow the math. So when you estimate the carbon footprint of your product or your operation or anything that you're looking to drive a reduction on, you always want to maybe start with the biggest piece of the pie as looking where you can tackle it. I say maybe, not always. Sometimes there's some low-lying fruit. And so really it requires a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. If you can tackle the next three biggest pieces of the pie for half the cost as the biggest piece, then you know maybe that's where you want to start. But I think the math is what leads you down that pathway. And so if I were to use an example, and Declan mentioned this, but at Ingredion, we have two different types of operations, wet milling and dry milling that produce our plant-based proteins. The dry milling operation has 5% of the carbon footprint of the wet milling operation, and it has no water discharge. So it's a closed loop on water, which they can be because it's dry milling. And so that, that facility in Van Scoy is producing our isolates, which if you saw from the slide earlier, is a lower percentage of protein than concentrate. So in some cases we have customers that, that want, they're okay with a lower percentage of protein in the product because they want the lower environmental footprint, either for company commitments or because they're trying to market that in a particular brand. So. But if I were to go in to try to reduce the overall carbon footprint of our plant-based protein operations, obviously I'd want to start with, with the concentrates production, which is using that wet milling because it's the biggest piece of the pie and where I can move the meter the most. So sustainability is at the end of the day, more than just carbon footprinting though, or environmental footprinting. And so there really is a lot of complexity around it. And if we look over here about ESG initiatives or what consumers want. We see that 92% of millennials report that they would be more likely to trust a company that supports social and environmental issues. And I will tell you that consumers, what they sometimes want or value or will pay for in a product differs from what we as a company maybe necessarily see as being sustainable or what is aligned with a particular strategy. So consumers may want, for example, or, or, or non-GMO and that's not always aligned with lowering the carbon footprint, depending on the farming operations. And so what we find when we talk about sustainability of products is that there's always a secret and, right? So a customer tells us they want a lower environmental footprint. What they may not tell us is that it also has to meet other requirements as well. And so it's really important that we take a holistic look at sustainability. An example of this, I would say, if we step outside of plant-based proteins, and look at stevia sourcing. We have customers that want lower environmental footprint in our stevia sourcing, but the secret and that's always there is it has to be ethically sourced. And so the region of the world that has the highest yields from stevia and therefore the lowest carbon footprint is also one that has some suspected human rights allegations associated with it. And so we have a lot of customers that don't want stevia sourced from that region even though they're accepting a higher carbon footprint for stevia or somewhere else. So that's what we say when we talk about owning the end is understanding that sustainability is more than just environmental. There's social aspects as well. And there can be other considerations based on 
what your consumers are willing to pay more for, or what you as a company may have set as your own sustainability targets. And so it's really important that we look at that and try to make a balanced decision on how to move forward. And that brings us to Ingredients partnership with the HowBid platform. We really wanted to be able to look at multiple attributes of sustainability and how different decision-making drives those attributes up, up or down. And so we wanted to be able to understand how our products connect to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. At the end of the day, we not only see those as being important for society, but we see it as an area where we're going to drive growth. So Declan mentioned earlier UN SDG 3. We know that if the planet's going to have good health and well-being by 2030, alternate proteins have to be part of that solution. Because the reality is, and I can say this because I'm sitting here in America, is the rest of the world can't eat meat the way that we do in the United States. It would be somewhat devastating to the climate. And so the HowBid platform also allows us to link directly to formulators of some of our customers. And it can produce carbon and water footprints that helps us answer some of the questions. So as a customer comes in and is looking to formulate, we can give them some of that environmental information in a much quicker time than doing, say, a life cycle assessment. Um, and it also helps us identify products with sustainability claims. And then where we really look to, I guess, drive some horsepower along with how good is by also overlaying some insights from our Atlas platform, which is our proprietary consumer insights. So if you think about as a company that's making consumer facing products and you wanted to use a plant-based protein and you could be in a segment, right? It could be alternate milks or it could be snacking, but really understanding what the consumers value and want in that segment along with what are the trade-offs in sustainability, I think then really provides a lot of insight that our customers can utilize. And then a final thing on here is we look at all that insight and we leverage that to drive improvement plans within our own growth platform. So if we're seeing that soil health scores are not where we would want them to be for a particular product, we can then go back and look at driving some longer term action plans to work on that. And so just in, in wrapping up, our, the question here is, are plant-based proteins a more sustainable options? I think if you look across the aspects of plant-based proteins, it's not always a 100% yes. I think in general, if I were asked that question in 10 seconds in an elevator, I would say, yes, they tend to be. But given your particular situation, there might be more complexity there that you need to look at. Carbon footprint tools can help you as long as you know what's the right level of granularity that you're looking for so that you're not spending more money or time getting the answers to those questions. I'll leave you with this. Sustainability is complex. It's never just your environmental footprint. And so I would urge everyone to kind of look beyond the surface and make sure you're identifying all those ands, which may be known or unknown. And then understand what actually drives value for your company or brand is key. So when you have to make those decisions about trade-offs and when you have to look at the ends, knowing where the value for your organization or for your consumer lies is really going to help you in that decision-making. And then I would say this, make sure that you have the right partners that are on the same journey, whether that's suppliers, whether that's people at the farm level, but being aligned on this journey and leveraging everybody's expertise, I think is really critical to success. And with that, I think we'll move into the Q&A. Thank you very much, Brian, for that. And also Declan for the earlier presentation, a fantastic appraisal of how 
ingredient is driving sustainability, I guess, and it raises quite a number of discussion points. We'll get onto the Q&A a little bit later. Our audience will notice that there's a little Q&A button there that you can just insert your questions and I will get to some of those a bit later on. But you raised a number of discussion points, which is what we're going to be doing now for the next 35 or so minutes. We have a great panel today. If we can start introducing them to the screen, of course, Brian, we have already got to know you. It's Stacey there. Yes, there's Stacey. Stacey, could you please briefly let me know who you are, what organization you're from, and just a few sentences, why you think this discussion today is of importance. Sure. Um, thank you for the invitation. Stacey Pyatt, my function title is Program Manager. I work at Wageningen University and Research, which is an academic institution in the Netherlands. As program manager, my responsibility is basically to oversee our work on the protein transition and to engage with external stakeholders in this domain. And I do it with a lot of joy because I think that this protein transition that we're undergoing is incredibly important. And I applaud this dialogue in particular because around sustainability, I think we can be more transparent and I think we can do a little bit better than we're doing now. Asha, you next. So hello, everybody. My name is Joel and I'm based off here in Brazil where I steward a small-scale agroforestry coffee system. And I'm also Director of Growth and Innovation at Howgood, which Brian made a wonderful job of explaining. But we're basically a research company with a very powerful database of sustainability data for 33,000 different ingredients, origins, standard certifications, and agricultural practices. And for me, this is personally a, a very important discussion because when you look at the data food, is a big part of the solution for climate change and other issues that we're facing from a sustainability perspective. And the shift to a plant-rich diet is estimated to be the second most powerful solution to reverse climate change based on more than 90 different solutions that were assessed by Project Drawdown. And so it's the right place to be and the right topic to talk about. Yeah, certainly is. First off, Stacey, let's have a definition of sustainability. What do we mean by it? Because it can mean so many different things to, to so many different companies. Well, I have to say kudos to Brian. I think that's that's really well queued up and answering that it's a that it's a very holistic question, right? I mean, we take a shortcut. I see a lot of shortcuts in the media, but also sort of in the minds of the consumer. And unfortunately, sometimes with with food industry insiders as well, that sustainability is only about greenhouse gas emissions or a single single issue. Or for example, water or land use. You see certain novel proteins coming out that are focused on, hey, we are land independent. And sort of that's their highlight rather than being a being as holistic as Brian has queued us up to be today. But those are all interesting, quantifiable measures. The greenhouse gases, the water, the land use. I think when it gets even more complicated is when we're talking about the less quantifiable things like biodiversity which we all acknowledge is incredibly important, but how are we measuring what steps we're taking in that direction? Or are we just intuitively following we, what we think we should be doing? And then you have issues which are sort of confounded with sustainability and not always necessarily contributing to sustainability. Like for example, local production, most of us assume that something that's locally produced is more sustainable, can or cannot be the case depending on the quantification of those various factors. So it is just a very complicated issue. And my plea would be for us to be, as I said, more transparent and also to hold each other in the food industry accountable to make that holistic communication around multi-factors that are part of the sustainability picture. I mean, Brian talked about the trade-offs for manufacturers. Obviously there's trade-offs in developing some of these products. I mean, what about the environmental and social risks, such as the, uh, the health risk of 
eating highly processed protein that comes under criticism in the press or deforestation even that producing things like soy Jan, you're in brazil there so it's obviously oh, yeah I think, yeah i live in the brazilian cerrado where millions of hectares have been lost to make room for livestock and basically soy production one important data point that we should bear in mind is that 77 percent of the world's soy is fed to livestock for meat and dairy production and so that's actually what's driving the higher resource footprint of animal-based proteins on average. And so even in that context, the shift to a plant-based breech diet still makes a lot of sense from a sustainability perspective because you're basically not double counting in terms of impact for both the, the resources to feed the livestock and to feed the feed that goes into the livestock. I'll let someone else talk about the health impacts. So I think I will, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think I... This sort of framing of health risks of eating highly processed protein is maybe a little bit overstating the case of what we know so far. I mean, just to zoom out to what we know so far, we know that a low processed plant-based diet that includes whole grains, pulses, and legumes is basically commonly agreed as the good that we should be working toward. On the other hand, there is a trade-off, and we know about that as well. If you eat totally unprocessed chickpeas, that protein is less digestible to you than if you eat a chickpea protein isolate simply because we've taken out all the nutrition, anti-nutritional factors and the sort of this matrix, this fibrous matrix that the protein is in. So there is a trade-off between this is a healthy diet versus this is how we get our protein to be maximally digestible for you. I think what's the question behind the question is, okay, if we're looking at this category of meat analogs and meat mimics, how does how do we position that into a healthy diet? And unfortunately, there the science doesn't have anything to say because this is a completely new category. And in doing health and nutrition research that is as holistic as how does it contribute to our health, that is a sort of long-term trajectory. And we just, as science, we don't have any answer for you now about how a meat analog is seen by your body in terms of biomarkers for long-term health. Brian, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting discussion, right? And we continually, whether it's around health of processed foods or the environmental footprint of plant proteins, we're continually getting bombarded with differing information. As I know, are probably a lot of people on the call, as are anybody who work in the sustainability space. And so I think it, it what I want to say is not actually to comment on that, but to say that we really rely on a lot of dialogue between our partners. So, so being able to talk with people like Zhao or experts like Stacey or and bring our customers into that discussion, I think is really important. We've done this in the past around things like high fructose corn syrup. We've done this years ago around non-GMOs. And as the data keeps getting better, then we get more clarity. But it's a path that, that we don't try to walk alone. And so we think it's really important that platforms like this and panels like this are, are good to have that conversation. Michelle, you're probably a good person to answer this one. Do we need more evidence to show that plant-based proteins have higher sustainability performance than traditional animal-based proteins, or, or is the data that we've got out there sufficient? I think the data we have out there is quite robust in terms of showing that, on average, conventional plant-based proteins have better sustainability performance than conventional animal-based proteins. And this finding is consistent across a lot of the sustainability metrics that you assess, including carbon footprint, land use, water use, water eutrophication. It is also consistent. There are differences, but there, it's also consistent in terms of if you assess the impact per kilo of product or per 100 grams of protein or per 1,000 kilocalories. 
And so the data seems consistent there. The only note I would add is that agriculture science is nuanced. And I think one of the key takeaways of this panel today is just the nuance and all the sick nature of sustainability. So the type of crop is a very important determinant of the sustainability impact, but it's not the only one. So, and based on our research here at How Good, for example, we've seen that impact factors or the same ingredients can vary 50 fold depending on the origin of the ingredient, the types of agricultural practices that were used. And so all of that should be taken into account when you're quantifying the sustainability impact. But overall, on average, definitely the science is very robust and we should be relatively confident about the benefits of plant-rich diets. If nobody's got anything else to add to that one, I can see lots of questions already coming in for the audience, so that's fantastic. Um, can we make fair comparisons of animal and plant proteins without considering what happens after farming? I mean, grain legumes, for instance, need more cooking and processing than meat. Who wants to tackle that one? Yeah, I can. I, I think it's where, where some of these life cycle assessment tools or carbon footprinting tools come into play. They're looking at those various stages and the whole idea of the greenhouse gas accounting protocol we're having an ISO standard around doing life cycle assessments is so that we're trying to get that as close to an apples to apples comparison. And I think Rajal referenced that in, in what their tool is looking at, not just the agricultural piece, which is a big part, but also the processing on the tail end. And I know at least for us, we find that agriculture is over 70% of that footprint. And so the processing is not as big uh, of a factor, but still enough that it needs to be considered. Continuing on that theme, Zhao, I mean, what role does agriculture play in sustainability assessment? So for food products, the role is substantial. As Brian mentioned, we see that land use and farm stage level impact usually accounts for 70 to 80% of the full life cycle impact of the product. Of course, this is very conditional. It's kind of basically, it's a generalization. Of course, if you're air freighting a specific product, your transportation emissions will have a higher weight in terms of the overall impact of, of the product for the transportation stage. But in general, 70 to 80% comes from land use and agriculture. And so these really, there is kind of this disconnect because often what's most material to the consumer is the packaging. It's a transportation, it's what they see, but what they do not see, it's often what happens at the farm. And so really looking at packaging, transportation, Processing is very important, but we should never lose sight of what's happening on agriculture. And that's why also it's it's great and encouraging that companies like Ingredient also are investing in regenerative agriculture pilots so that we are also looking at improving the agricultural practices that are used to grow these ingredients and have better ecological outcomes. Anyone else got something to add to that before I take a couple of questions from the audience? Nope. Okay, we're going to move on. Samika has asked, how does the cost of plant-based protein production compare with the animal-based protein? I'm just going to fire a few of these now. Stacy. Well, I'll, I'll answer that one in qualitative terms. I think there is a disconnect right now between what you experience in terms of price when you're a consumer standing in the supermarket and what the actuality or the potentiality is. So right now, what we see in almost every country in the world where meat analogs are being sold, their per kilo price is more expensive than the meat that they're trying to replace. And there are various reasons for that. One arguable reason is that it's just a matter of scale. It's still really a niche. We're looking at 2% of the global protein market when we look at the sort of meat analogs. And as soon as you achieve scale, that price can come down. 
Another thing is that many companies are plowing all their profit on these back into R&D. It's a hot and competitive space. And of course, to make your business model work, you need to get a price premium on the products. And that should also settle down in, in some years time. Because in theory, plants are cheaper. They're easier to produce. They're, there's no reason why a plant-based product needs to be more expensive than the meat. I would say to a cost-conscious consumer, go eat a can of chickpeas. It doesn't need to look like a steak. That's still a very cheap and absolutely perfect from a sustainability and nutritional point of view for dinner. Wait, Brian, you've probably got your customers coming to you and price is probably a big consideration for them. I mean, what are they telling you about the price comparisons? I would imagine you've got customers who are looking to incorporate more plant-based products into their potentially existing yeah. meat products. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're finding a lot of the things Stacy mentioned as well, right? It's, some of that is demand. Right now, sometimes the demand for plant-based proteins is outstripping the the amount that's available or that's being produced on an ongoing basis. So that's that's part of it that may be a factor. But I think what's telling is that we're also seeing some animal protein companies looking at hybridization as a mechanism to lower their carbon footprint, lower their cost, and maybe get a price premium for with their consumers. So when I was a kid, you went to school and you got a soy burger, right? So they blended soy with ground beef because it made it cheaper. And we ate it because we were kids, right? And my kids now want to eat those hybridized animal and vegetable protein products. And I'm paying a premium for that over what I would pay for just say a hamburger patty in, in the store. And that's because it's a specialty item, right? It's neat. And so I think the fact that we're seeing some of that hybridization emerge kind of shows that there's a growing market for it. But, but at the time, it's increasing the demand and the more defaults. Yeah, I think Simon here, he's asked quite a few questions about peas, but he says, do you think that hybrid products containing animal and plant proteins could be a way for consumers to bridge the gap to a plant-based diet? Would it help reduce stigma? around going plant-based. Brian, do you want to continue that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it's, I mean, for particularly for an animal protein company, it can be a win-win for people who are looking to be a little bit more healthy in their diet and bridge the gap to going all animal or all plant protein. So, so yeah, I think we're seeing that hybridization at least a few years back was really popular, but I think it still tends to be in the trends that we look at on an ongoing basis. And I know from discussions before, Stacey, you had some plant-based products yourself for breakfast this morning. So do you want to answer that question as well? I indeed had some plant-based. I had a nice plant-based breakfast. I was triggered by what Brian is saying. What we've seen here in Western Europe, we've seen some launches of hybrid products, but nobody has yet sort of nailed that that products category. We've had a few that were then pulled back off the shelves. And my suspicion was it might be something better done quietly by stealth, by, you know, in the products where meat doesn't play the starring role. And that there is at least a subset of consumers who prefers to do plant-based on Monday and feel very virtuous on Monday and then have their burger on Tuesday and feel super indulgent. That in that way that the consumer, like the, there's this flexitarian who prefers one day full plant-based and one day full meat. But I do expect more of these sort of hybrid products coming in sort of quietly under the radar, especially in these kind of composite products like meals or soups or prepared foods. I can already tell you that we've got far too many questions coming in that we're going to be able to get through. 
in this hour, but via this platform, you can contact our speakers and you can ask them the questions. And I'm sure that they will get back to you. Chap here, Joshua de Capua, who says, I think Stacey brought up a very important point. Is there any trend towards or currently existing metrics that help understand less easily quantifiable metrics, e.g. sustainable agricultural practices, soil organizer, organism diversity, soil health, etc." That's a complicated question. I can't say, Dylan. Yeah, that's right. Your wheelhouse. <laughs> it is. And so is kind of the G emissions, the carbon emissions is one of the most common, but the, actually the good news is that there are a lot of standards and already widely available methodologies to calculate impacts on other metrics. And so, for example, at how good we track impacts on biodiversity, we track impacts on labor risk and human rights risk. We track impacts on land use, on animal welfare, on water use. And so to that point of having an holistic approach to sustainability, you really need ways to holistically measure sustainability. And there are standards out there. Also, what we're seeing is there are more and more regulations coming in. For example, in the European Union, uh, the European Commission has approved the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which has a list of 136 different metrics that companies will be required to report on at an entity level. So the good news is even if you do not know about them yet, there are industry methodologies to track impacts on more than just carbon. Excellent. I'm going to take another question, actually, Zhao, this could be for you. How do you calculate the CO2 equivalent kg of a food product? Quite a simple question. We'll get it in there yeah. anyway. Yeah. So what you'll typically do is to assess first kind of the system boundaries, right? So what is the full life cycle of the product? So what are the agricultural practices that were used? Was any land cleared to grow the crops that are using that food product? What are What transportation happened between the farm, the processing location, and the manufacturing? How much energy use is associated with processing and manufacturing of the product? And then you also look at the packaging stage, what go, everything that goes into the packaging, the use of the product, and any emissions that are associated with heating or cooling the product, and then the end of life, right? The disposal food waste is a big driver of emissions. And then for each of those, typically you will either use primary data, meaning that you're measuring that on your own operations and using one of those data points, or you're using, if you're using industry standard processes, databases, like how good are others that have you have basically average emission factors for each of those processes and stages and allow you to calculate the full footprint and see where your hotspots are. And a quick one here from Lotta Balfoot, because it's on the same tip topic. What are relevant publicly available carbon footprint calculators? I guess it depends where you are in the world. Yeah. And also, so there is, you can look at kind of one, one study that is widely available is a poor and MSX study. It was one of the largest meta studies that had been conducted for the food and agricultural sector and has a lot of the impact factors for ingredients and it provides you global averages and so if you want to something free you can go to that study you can also email me and i can send you the link and it's a good place to potentially start then if you want to go deeper into specific origins and practices then you probably need to work with a specialized platform okay we're going to get back to proteins themselves now it's probably a question for brian but feel free to chip in Zhao and stacy if you want some people say the protein quality with certain plant-based proteins is lower them with meat, how ingredient do you engineer more power into your proteins? 
Yeah. I mean, we're an innovation company at heart, right? So we look at one, we look at the different concentrations of protein. And so we have isolates, which I think if you remember on the slide earlier is over 80% protein content. And then we have concentrate coming out of our Vanskoy facility, which are tend to be around 50 to 60% protein value. So I think looking at the type of plant-based protein that you want to get is one way, but I think then there's also some complexity there. So we also not just sell uh, the plant-based protein, but the systems around it. And so sometimes depending on what you want to do means that you need more than just a plant protein. You might need other products in there as well. You might need starches that the whole water that a change mouth feel to give it more of a fatty feel or so so i think there's a lot of complexity there and so while that on the surface it sounds like it it ought to be a simple question i think it's that it's a lot deeper than that and but the point is kid there's a lot of innovation around plant-based products and understanding the end application and then applying some of those innovative ingredients which might go beyond just the plant-based proteins is really important i mean right here the start of this only sorry go on stacy Oh yeah, I can just add to that. Our consumption data tells us that if you live in a relatively high income country, the vast majority of people are over consuming protein. So whether your protein is perfectly digestible is probably not an issue for you unless you are toddler baby or an, an elderly, an older consumer. That's So that's one thing we're on over consuming protein and under consuming fiber. So what Brian has said around, you know, it's not just the protein. I completely agree with that. The second criticism that plant-based proteins sometimes get is that they don't have complete amino acid nutrition. And that can be true that some of them are lower in, in specific amino acids that we need. But as long as you're not getting all your protein from a single source, if you are a regular eater, you're fine if you consume pulses and also some grains. So if you have some peas and you have some bread, this whole amino acid story is a big bucket of nothing. It's just excitement that's hanging around for not much reason, because as long as you're eating a varied diet, that amino acid profile is really not a deal breaker. It's a question that I think would be quite relevant for a lot of the manufacturers that are among the delegates today. I read recently that, I think it was research from Sweden, that the energy consumption of the processing of a pea-based product was so high that the whole advantage of using pea instead of chicken in this case was lost, at least in terms of climate change. Is that a, re a reality in many cases? And if so, how can the sector address such issues. Stacey? Yeah, well, I'm interested in what Joao also has to say about this. So in, in sort of broad lines, beef is easy to beat, right? And chicken is far more efficient than beef. So by the way, also a shift from beef to chicken would be a win in terms of sustainability. I, in, in, It is con consistent with our calculations that some very efficiently produced chicken when we compare some very inefficiently produced plant-based products, that product might not necessarily make sense. That said, if we're doing plant-based right, if we're using less processed, not spray-dried, not necessarily intensely produced ingredients, we can be chicken too. So I don't want to give the idea that this is sort of, to paint this with a too broad brush, it can happen that there are products out there that are not completely making sense right now. Michelle, do you want to continue there? Yeah, I think Stacey did great. And it speaks once more to the point around the nuance of the sustainability impact measurement. I don't know that particular study, but it speaks again to the to this idea that, okay, averages are great, but we're still generalizing. And so there are clear quantified measurable benefits on average of plant-based proteins versus animal-based proteins. But then that's kind of, that's not the end of the story, right? And there's a lot of nuance in agricultural science. And you can even look at certain ways of production of animal protein, 
with all of those regenerative agriculture and farmers that show that there is also a pathway to reduce significantly the environmental impacts of animal protein. And so it speaks to the idea of nuance and you shouldn't stop just because you have a plant-based protein in your product. That's not the end of your sustainability journey. And that's great news because your impact can be much more potentialized and, and maximized if you start looking at agricultural practices, more efficient production systems. Yeah, I think mean, well, you mentioned it there. I mean, what are the options, Stacey, to reduce the energy consumption of plant processing? Well, I'm, I will leave the part about agricultural practice aside because that's not my, my stomping ground. But when we look at processing, I think that comes back to something that, that Brian already mentioned in his presentation. In terms of the processing, we know that spray drying, so the drying process is the most energy intensive piece of protein processing. And we're only spray drying when we get pulses off the field, they're pretty dry already, but we're solubilizing them in order to make an isolate. So we're really only doing that spray drying when we're talking about a protein isolate in the case of grains and pulses. So the more we can do to get away from that drying step, so going to concentrates is something I completely applaud. I think if we could do more of that, of course, it comes with challenges in terms of taste, in terms of texture formulation, and collectively our scientific knowledge basis on how those concentrates are performing and how to to optimize the, their performance in foods is still too low. But I think that's a step in the right direction. And then there are technologies which are looking at alternatives to this protein isolate process. How can we bump up the protein content and protein concentrates? How can we reduce the number of the amount of anti-nutritional factors or off-flavors that are present without that complete sort of solubilization and spray drying process. We're doing electrostatic separation. We're also doing some sort of post-processing enzymatic and fermentation. I think there are really interesting solutions out there on the horizon in the two to five year timeline that will help us with this. Brian, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think again, I talked about following the math, right? It doesn't matter whether you're making animal protein or you're making plant protein or everybody's got a top problem. And when you address that, the next thing on the rung becomes your new top problem. And so the Zhao's point, it's really not about, it's not about saying something good enough. It's about continually looking at how you can improve it and whether that's electrification of equipment and then go into renewable energy. And I mean, on all those things, right? We could, you could dig into any one of these aspects and could be their own separate topic. But I think it's about making sure that you have a strategy to keep minimizing that impact, whether it's social or environmental. And sometimes as a company, we have to just decide, right? We have to decide the social impact, maybe at the farming level or something might be an issue that we're trying to tackle. We, we used to get my protein is out of, out of Asia and now we're getting them out of the U.S. and Canada. And so that, that tackled some of the, that farming social aspect for us. And now we've got opportunities to look at how do we drop regenerative agriculture into that and even lower the environmental footprint at the agricultural level. And then also considering that some of our byproducts from our manufacturing are also going into animal feed, it also then reduces the, the carbon footprint of that supply chain as well. And so. I, there's a lot of complexity there, but yeah, I would say that we're continually looking at technologies that allow us to make improvements. When this move on to the gatekeeper, now I think someone told me the other day that meat consumption in Germany has never been lower, plant-based consumption has never been higher. I mean, we're always reading that consumers today are more likely to buy products that are greener or better for the planet. I'm not sure where all of these statistics come from, but they say about statistics. But Sharon, are consumers really, truly aware of the sustainability benefits of plant-based versus 
adult-based counterparts? So maybe I'll respond maybe to that question in two parts. The first one is there have been two recent studies, both based on point of sale data. So this is not people saying, telling what they do, but actually it's data from their purchasing behavior. And these two studies from the United States basically show that sustainability marketed products are growing 2.7 times faster than conventionally marketed products. And on average are charging a 28% price premium, which has been reducing over time, but it's still considerable. So what we're seeing is products, not necessarily sustainable products, right? We're kind of talking about products that make sustainability claims are able to translate that into your sales. And then when you ask about are consumers aware, what is surprising is more and more they are aware, but actually mostly not. And so, for example, there is research from the European Union that discovered that only 10% of Europeans agree that what they eat has a negative impact on the environment. A recent study in the US also demonstrated that 3% of, only 3% of US consumers are actually aware of the needs impact on, on climate change. And so the key takeaway is really every plant-based protein company, manufacturer, any company committed to sustainability should also embrace a role of being an educator. Because in the end, it shouldn't be the products that are making claims necessarily that are driving sales, but the products that are inherently sustainable, intrinsically sustainable. And so in order for us to keep driving that demand for plant-based pr proteins, then we really need to embrace the role of being educators with our consumers, with our investors, with our partners, and yeah, that's for, with events like this. Yeah, that's very important. We shouldn't it certainly shouldn't be letting the mainstream media direct the narrative on this. Right, there's a cost of living crisis. Plant-based foods aren't the cheapest at the moment. We are getting closer and closer to price parity and hopefully cheaper. But where do plant-based foods fit in today's society with this cost of living crisis? Stacey? I was still, I'm still with the previous question. So if you don't mind, I'm going to answer that and then I'll do this because we've touched on price. Um, I to just mention what we see here in the Netherlands, we have a lot of study on that, what we call the intention behavior gap. And what we see here, I mean, whether consumers are aware of their dietary choice, they are self-reporting either an intention to reduce their meat consumption or labeling themselves as flexitarian. So two thirds of our consumers here are labeling themselves flexitarian in the meantime, and or telling us they want to reduce their meat consumption. But what's odd is we have this intention behavior gap that people are telling us they want to reduce, but we're not actually seeing a corresponding significant decrease in meat consumption, which I think is pretty fascinating. And I think we need to sort of dive into. We know from the energy transition, for example, that people overcompensate. For example, if you've decided to put in safety light bulbs or energy saving light bulbs, you might then decide you can hop on a plane and fly to Mallorca for a vacation and treat yourself. So that's an option of what could be happening. It could also be happening that there is a subset of consumers who are reducing their meat consumption, but also another collection of consumers who are increasing their meat consumption still, which are sort of compensating or overcompensating for that movement. We just don't know. I would say, I would also sort of respond on the question of sort of educating consumers. We advocate for careful education because telling people in Western societies, telling people what to eat can also cause a sort of backlash. For example, policymakers tend to want to put out education campaigns about what people should eat and we tell them 
put your energy into arranging their food choice environment that plant-based becomes easier and more accessible for them rather than in telling them what they should what they should eat i do think around sort of marketing and to the food industry that piece of being more educated and transparent is definitely worthwhile but on policymakers i would caution the whole idea of talking about what people should eat and Plant-based, I've come back to my previous answer to answer the question you actually asked me, which is plant-based is theoretically potentially cheaper. We just need to put all of our effort into making that happen. Okay, we're running out of time fast. The questions that we've had in the chat, we will get those all to you. So we'll ensure that so the speakers can get back to you directly. So that's fantastic. So if you haven't had time to answer your question, don't worry about it too much. Final question. I'm not sure if you saw it, but recently there was a Bloomberg Business Week article that labeled plant-based meats a fad. So I'm going to ask each of you, fad or future? Brian, I guess I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's the future, right? The UN SDGs have said that alternate proteins have to be part of the world's healthy diet and sustainable diet by 2030. And so I think we're going to continue to see consumption in the space grow. Zhao? I would say it's not just the future, but it's an exciting future. If we are to get any chance of addressing the sustainability issues that we're facing from climate change to biodiversity loss, plant-rich diets are an important of the solution. And I'll cite that, again, that project drawdown study that found out that plant-rich diets are the second most powerful solution to address climate change. And so we can not have it. And finally, Stacey. Well, latest data from Europe shows that the category plant-based is still growing. I would say I hope that our long-term future looks more like a can of chickpeas than like something that is a meat mimic. Our hope for the meat alternatives, the meat replacers, is that there's a transitional phase that helps us to a plant-based diet that's based on whole foods, which we know is sort of the optimal in terms of health. And that doesn't mean they're not a good idea. I really support them as a good idea, but I do hope they're transitional in that long term. We're, we're headed more toward our nutritional guidelines. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. What a great way to end. It's four o'clock here in the UK, so hopefully we don't get switched off. That's all we have time for today. I would like to thank our speakers, Brian Declan earlier on, Zhao and Stacey. And thank you once again to Ingredion for sponsoring today's broadcast. You can join us next month on May 31st for extracting protein from waste and, and hopefully we get the same sort of engagement for that we've had today as i said before sorry we didn't get a chance to get through all of your questions but you can try and contact the speakers that we had here today reach out to them on LinkedIn. i believe there's a way you can get in touch with them via this platform and finally a shameless plug for our magazine once again i do edit it so i'm entitled to give it a plug protein production technology international the april may 2023 edition will be available online later on today and within that, we even have a, an article written by Brian Nash from Ingredients. So please do check that out. So thank you very much for joining us. That's all we've got time for. We'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.